when you look at UFOs, people say, well, these UFOs are spheres or they're disks or they're triangles, right? That's the predominant set of shapes we see. You know why? I have a theory. Round UFOs are particle accelerators. And triangular UFOs are particle accelerators as well. And they're generating these particles. <clears throat> Even the shapes in our cultural history fit right in with the potential usage of these KK particles to jump into this compressed space, this compressed dimension, and literally punch out and punch in anywhere they want. Even the cultural descriptions of the UFOs work when it comes to describing a ship this way. I know Bob's story. Um, I know uh, George Knapp has done extensive interviews with, with Bob Lazar. Um, I know Rogan's done it, yes. I'm not convinced one way or the other that he did everything he said he did. Um, I'm not I'm not convinced, but I'm also not calling him any kind of fraud either. Because I, I don't know enough either way. Okay. For example, um before they found element one hundred and fifteen, he was talking about it, right? <clears throat> element 115 in the periodic table. Well, if you are a lay person, you say, how did he know that exists? Part of me thinks, just like with Bob Lazar, part of me thinks that Frank Corso was the real deal. And part of me thinks that maybe some of it was true, but some of it wasn't quite factual. And I've read the book many, so many times, in fact, that the pages have fallen out. I got to kind of resort the pages in order to do the pages right now because I so many of them fallen out. But it was a very good book. I was riveted by it because I wanted to know if this was if this was true. And I read it with the idea of whether it could be true. And the answer was yes, it could be true. But was it true? I don't know. astronomer this is what we look like <laughs> you know uh we live out in uh you know observatory buildings once at a time and um i'm also the mutual ufo network's chief photo and video analyst um because why not it's a great opportunity it's a great field and it's opening up now like you can't believe there's so many more people getting interested in it uh so um in the astronomy world uh, I got a degree in astronomy. That's what I went to school for, like I said. And so uh, I spent a lot of years, you know, working in professional observatories and, you know, big observatories doing work on programs and things. And then um, I went into computer science 
because computer science chugs away at numbers that tell us all about the universe. So once I got uh, the computer science under my belt, I've migrated back to astronomy. And now uh, I'm doing my own thing full time. And uh, I run remote observatories around the country. So uh, we have two right now, one here. Uh, the telescope is behind me right there. I don't know if you can see it. Um, and uh, the that one is for the East Coast, and that's out of the building because we're working on the building. And uh, out in Arizona, uh, we have one out in the desert. And this one is our showpiece. We show people beautiful night sky on a nightly basis when it's clear, probably tonight even. Um, and that's a that's Sky Tour live stream. It's a a, a streaming service that we've come up with, and uh, we have uh, lots of people that come in from all over the world. I have someone from Bulgaria who comes in. I don't have anyone from Belgium yet, so maybe you're the first. <laughs> right? Really interesting. So that's what I do, uh, and uh, my job, in my view, is to. Uh, bring science to people who might normally not think about it and make it understandable to those who might think they can't understand it. And that's my forte. That's my strength is that I can explain the complex in a much more down to earth way. So, cause I, you know, science is for everybody. Very interesting. Um, Maybe quickly, can you tell me about FX models also? I think it would be interesting to hear about. Yeah, sure. FX, FX models is a, a company I started to help pay the bills way back in the 90s. Um, and um, I ended up doing a lot of work for the Navy. I still do. And defense contractors, I still do that too. Uh, and so I build a lot of uh, submarine models. Anything under the water surface, that's my strength. So... In astronomy, it's outer space, and with the other business, it's inner space, you know, below the waves, and here, not not so much, you know. So it's inner space or outer space, you know, and so FX Models has been going strong since 1995, you know, and uh, we build submarines of all kinds, even working ones, as models, and so we have submarine models that are only just a, a few inches long that actually have what are called ballast tanks in them. They dive and surface using compressed air the whole nine yards. Uh, and that's part of a, a radio control uh, submarine industry that's out there. And we do that very, very little now. We actually make more display models for defense contractors in the Navy. Great. So we've asked you first, how, how did you get interested in UFOs? I think that's... Um... The first question for you before going to unidentified submerged objects, I think that's very interesting also. But how did you get interested in UFO first? Well, see, as a kid, I would look up at the sky and I would look at the stars and I'd say, and this is before I knew much about the stars. I knew, of course, that there were other suns, basically. And I would look up there and I would say, boy, you know, I'm sure there's life around some of those other stars too. There's got to be. I mean, look at this planet. You know, I compared life on earth to what could be out there. And like every human has two arms and two legs and they're, they're split down the middle symmetrically on either side. I didn't know what to call that as a kid, but now I know it's called bilateral symmetry. And that's based on most likely the way DNA in our systems replicates and makes copies of itself. And, 
that DNA, I figured, is in every animal on the planet. Every creature on the planet has DNA. So, and as a kid, I, I was nine, actually. And I said, I'll bet this DNA thing is all throughout the universe. I bet it's something that the universe makes. And I was wrong about that. The universe doesn't make it, but planets make it. Okay. And I, I hadn't put that together as a nine-year-old kid at that point. But uh, I had to have a, a big surgery when I was age nine. And when I got out of the hospital, I couldn't do anything. They had to make me stay in the house. I had to sit down, not exercise much because I was healing. So what did I do as a nine-year-old? Um, I did what any nine-year-old would do. I, I designed a space station. I drew up a, a, a notebook paper. I started drawing up this plan for a space station and I decided I'm going to send it to NASA. And I did. I shipped it off to NASA in a manila folder and I sat there at the mailbox every day waiting for them to uh, reply and say, we took your idea. You're going to be a you know a phenomenal person. That never came. But what did come was a big box and it was from NASA. I was like, wow, this is cool. And I opened it up. And it was full of model kits, books, pamphlets on almost every single program NASA was doing at that time. And it had, uh, you know, cloth mission patches, the round patches oh, uh, for, you know, like the early Apollo, everything. It was really incredible. Uh, and I was like, I'm going to label this. So I got a black magic marker from my mother and I labeled it Space Box because it was all about space. So this box was mine. And then, you know, I thought it was giant when I was a kid. It was actually smaller, but it was pretty big. So uh, there was a there was a uh, envelope in there and it had my space station plan in it. And it was a letter from a scientist at NASA. Wow. Mom, a scientist wrote me. I could care less about the models. I love making models. Okay, but I the scientist wrote me. And so I read this letter and he said, you are fantastically gifted. Think about going into the space program. You know, back then they called it the manned space program, you know. But human endeavors in space flight have been something I've always kind of leaned into a little bit, you know. I was always very, very into that because I know that out there is where we're going to go at some point, right? So as it turns out, um, uh, this scientist uh, uh, had really sparked the interest in a little kid, a nine-year-old kid. And I credit him with getting me into astronomy because it was shortly after that when I realized I'm going to get into astronomy. I'm going to become an astronomer, whatever that is. You know, I'm going to study this guy. And uh, it was probably 40 years later when I contacted him again, this time as an astronomer. And I said, uh, you know, I contacted you when I was nine years old. And because of what you did and shared with me, um, I decided to become an astronomer. And he wrote back saying, wow, that's incredible. I never, you know, I don't remember, of course, but that's fantastic. Well, his name was uh, Gentry Lee. Now, Gentry Lee is the head of all robotic missions to the outer solar system for JPL. And that's the guy that looked at my space station plan when he was just a NASA scientist. So uh, that's a great story. And I'm curious from your experience, why we don't have evidence for UFO or what you call also 
an unidentified submerged object. Let's start with UFO first, and then USO, yeah. and uh, just mm -hmm. tell me why do you believe since you said you believe there is maybe just first start. Why do you believe there is maybe aliens in, in if it's uh, related to UFO or it's not the case or why do you believe such something like that? But those are all good questions, and uh, the here's here's where I usually go with that. Um, we look at our planet, and we look at how our planet developed in our solar system, and we look out into space with the Kepler Space Telescope, uh, with the James Webb Space Telescope now, and we're finding planets that are in the zone that's habitable around stars. We're finding many planets that are in the habitable zones of their stars, and um, we now know that there's more planets in the universe than there are stars. That's a huge thing to comprehend and think about because if there's more planets than stars, it means there's more chances of life of some kind. Now, we're looking for microbial life on Mars, and we think there could be life of some type underneath Europa's icy mantle in the slush ocean beneath those ice caps. So if that's the case right here in our solar system, certainly other planets could have some type of extreme forms of life at the very least, right? I mean, <clears throat> down in Antarctica, more than a mile underground is Lake Vostok. <clears throat> and in Lake Vostok, there's 3,500 different types of species in there. Never seen the light of day. They're, they're more than two miles down under the ice in Antarctica. Sorry, gone for however many thousands, hundreds of thousands of years from the light of day. <clears throat> and they have this self-sustaining ecosystem of life, a tiny little private oasis uh, down there that supports several thousand different species. Now, that plus the fact that we dive in the deep ocean and we find that the deep ocean has these uh, sulfide chimneys, these, these vents called black smokers, Okay, colloquially. And these sulfide vents emit this very, very hot water, sometimes over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, and this, this, this water coming out laden with all kinds of minerals that a particular type of bacteria really likes to eat. Well, that bacteria is also lovingly eaten by filter feeders that live around those vents. And it's a cascading domino effect of dependency. Okay, the bacteria depends on the mineral water. The tube worms depend on the bacteria. The clams depend on the bacteria. The tiny little crabs depend on the clams and the, and the tube worms. And it's a, it's a cascading uh, bunch of life. So even here, we have extreme forms of life. And because we saw these forms of life deep in Antarctica's Lake Vostok, and because we find life deep at these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the Pacific we figured if it can be here, it could certainly be in other worlds in our solar system. And there are, those are called extremophiles, the, the ones that live in the very hot or very cold conditions. In fact, they love those conditions. So Europa around Jupiter is a target. Enceladus around Saturn is a target. Titan around Saturn is also a target for possibility. Mars is a target. So, uh, you know, if it's that if it's possible that we can find life of some kind around these other worlds, then it's probably possible that there'll be life 
like that, at the very least, around other stars around the universe. Now, look at all the rest of the life beyond microbial. Now you've got fish, you know, tiny little crustaceans and people, right? What about life like that? Much more complex life. Well, we know it took over 4 billion years to develop here on our planet. And the universe has nothing but time on its hands. So I'm sure that life could develop like us in some way, maybe even intelligent life elsewhere. And I'm not the only astronomer that thinks that either. You know. So I believe that aliens exist. Okay. Maybe the question, maybe the next question about where is evidence? I think the thing is, uh, maybe that's what I saw even in um in your community, it's kind of like ridicule, like, okay, we fed up with these talks. We still need an evidence. I, I, I tend to agree with that. It's like, it's now more than 50 years and there's nothing, or maybe it's secret, like saying that as, as we spoke before, like there's no much information about where where this material come from or this f vehicles or reverse engineering. And where do you see this? Yeah, it just... There is no evidence yet. Why? There is no evidence. Yeah, and, you know, that's that's a very good question. And, you know, Enrico Fermi, you know, the Fermi paradox, uh, uh, you may remember the Fermi paradox. He asked the question when he was talking to his uh, nuclear scientist buddies over lunch at one point. He basically said, where are they? Well, uh, that actually was wrongly attributed to Enrico Fermi, but that's okay. It's, it got his name on it. We'll call it the Fermi paradox. Um where are they? If they're supposed to, if they're here, if they're, if they're out there, then why aren't they here is the question I get all the time. And the response I usually give is because we are at a technological level that's here and they're at a technological level that's up here. They're not going to expose themselves to what's down below because what's down below can hurt them. Now you might say, well, that doesn't sound right. I mean, they're advanced species. Yes, they are. But so are we compared to ants. But if you kick the wrong ant hill, then those ants can come out and sting you enough times to kill you. Okay? You're not going to walk into a herd of elk, big, strong, hulking elk, and say, excuse me, i got to put this radio collar around your neck there. Hold still, Phil, <laughs> or whatever. You're not going to do that because <clears throat> they will kill you. And unfortunately, that's something that uh, an alien species would know and they'd want to avoid you know they would not want to in, come and get in touch with us uh as far as evidence goes though um an advanced species might not have any evidence that it leaves behind but there is lots of evidence for it actually we have submarine navies all over the world that when they're out there patrolling the seas they see things they sense and, and, and their sonars, they pick up things. There's a lot of reports from many navies about unknown submerged objects, the ones we talked about earlier, you said. But for UFOs, there's a ton of, of uh, data out there, a ton of artifacts, a ton of um, evidence that uh, is seen by people. Uh, and as MUFON's photo, chief photo analyst, I'm very, very hard on the data very hard on the data and just today i saw a video of a ufo taken by a u.s drone over iraq looking down at the ground 
and this spherical object flew through. Now, if that was in the United States, I would say that was a mylar balloon because it looked like a mylar balloon, sort of, but not really. It was too perfectly round. But this is in Iraq. And as far as having mylar balloons in Iraq, I don't know how many mylar balloons there are in Iraq and how many people might have one of those party balloons in Iraq. Maybe there are, but I don't know that yet. So that keeps this video very intriguing for me. Okay. So that's the kind of evidence we see as well. Now, the other evidence is technological evidence. <laughs> how do I begin this? There's a number of ways in which a unidentified object, a craft from another world can use technology to get here from there. It's a vast universe, obviously. So it's that gigantic distance that makes people say, how could they possibly be here? Well, they can. And I lecture on this. In fact, that's my lecture at Contact in the Desert coming up. I lecture on the, uh, in layman's terms, how a certain technology that's related to a theory we have of the universe called string theory can be leveraged by an advanced civilization to actually get here from there in a very short time. It's not the warp drive thing, not the Alcubierre drive, which you may have heard about, which is a, a warp drive where they warp space, then they unfold it. It's not that at all. It's very different. It's dimensional travel. Now, in, there's a certain variation of string theory. Uh, it's called RS1. That's the designations, you know. And in RS1, we have our X, Y, and Z movement through time, right? Our four dimensions, X, Y, and Z, and time is also a dimension. And we live on that, 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 that universe, right? That's our universe, and that's all here. But there's a fifth dimension down here that is right next to us that if we can go from here into here, the benefit of being here is that the whole universe is compressed around you. Everything is condensed. Everything is smaller. Distances are shorter. So that would give you the opportunity to use a technology to, say, punch out of our four dimensions, go into this fifth dimension, and then punch in anywhere else you want to go at will. And that means you can eat up tons of light years in a very short time and go distant places. And I'm not the only one that thinks about this, actually. There's a guy, my good friend, Bob Schroeder. He wrote the book, Solving the UFO Enigma. This was a theory he had. And when I read his work, I realized, wow, Bob, you're onto something. And so I started championing and looking into it and saw that this was something very possible. So technologically, what would you see? You know, if this technology was in play, well, one of the byproducts is that your UFO, all right, would look like it's shimmering. We get reports of that all the time. It would look like it's changing colors. We get reports of that all the time. It would look like it's vanishing from here and suddenly reappearing over here. We get reports of that all the time, too. So is that hard evidence? No, because all three of those things I could tell you is an... There are uh, reasons uh, from human anatomy, okay, to uh, astronomical reasons why you see things that way in the sky. However, we can't discount the fact that it could be that we're watching an advanced technology at play right here in our local space. 
maybe quick question if they are granted <coughs> like yeah. you said why do you think they bother to just to visit some civilization who are less developed oh. what is the blame of that i get a i get that question a lot and i have a really well it's a fundamentally uh, sound answer <clears throat> i mentioned before how we're we're bilaterally symmetric we're the same on the left and the right that's a consequence of what we're made of what we're made of are carbon atoms we're a carbon-based species carbon is the fourth most abundant element in the whole universe oxygen is the third and then you have helium is the second most abundant and hydrogen is the first so oxygen and carbon are the third and fourth most abundant so it stands to reason that a very flexible atom like the carbon atom is probably going to form the basis for life in countless locations countless locations so in order to have carbon-based life you need oxygen all right oxygen provides the energy and the means by which you can uh, create all kinds of uh, catalyzing reactions. You can, uh, you can uh, get your biological processes to be sustained, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if you're an alien species looking for another world like your own, and if you're carbon-based, well, guess what? You're not going to be able to see a carbon-based life form 10 light years away. But you know what you will see? you'll see oxygen in their atmosphere. Hmm. That, that's the telltale sign. And the amount of oxygen we have in our atmosphere doesn't change over time. Not by much. It kind of does this. The reason that that's important is because oxygen doesn't like to be in an atmosphere. It's a very, very, very uh, powerful uh, atom that will bond with anything. As soon as it can bond, it will. You know, so... On Mars, for instance, there was a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. And the water molecules that contained it were uh, broken apart by the ultraviolet radiation hitting Mars. And those oxygen molecules and oxygen, uh, you know, the O2 molecule went down into the ground where it began to bond with iron compounds. And it made uh, Fe2O3. So that means that's rust. Iron and oxygen bond to make rust. That's why Mars is red. It rusted. It's the rusty planet. Okay, so you think about that. You see that oxygen leaves an atmosphere very quickly after it becomes free. So if the oxygen comes in a burst and then no more, it'll all be gone in just a few hundred thousand to a million or two years. Here on Earth, it's been here for the entire existence of our planet starting about two and a half billion years ago. So that's a signal to any extraterrestrial civilization watching Earth. Look at the amount of oxygen in that atmosphere. There has to be life there. That can't be just geologic processes causing oxygen, which it can, okay, but not at that level, not at that extent. So oxygen in the atmosphere is like a bright blue beacon in the universe, shining out, saying, we're here, life is here. Stephen Hawking said, if you remember... Stephen Hawking once said, you know, we should keep our heads down and hide. We don't want people to see us. We don't want the aliens to know we're here, okay, because we're not ready for this contact. So we should just sort of stay out of the limelight. <clears throat> too late. We've been announcing our presence as a, light, a living planet for two and a half billion years. So anyone within two and a half billion light years from us 
which goes out well beyond every single galaxy that is in our group of galaxies that we call the local group and all the way to beyond galaxies in the Virgo cluster, which is the nearest big supercluster to us, and far beyond the signal from this planet has been going out there saying there's oxygen in this atmosphere. And all you need to find it is technology. By the way, technology like the James Webb Space Telescope. And we're only a few thousand years into our written language, going back to ancient Samaria. So uh, if you had a civilization that's 10,000 years into their language development, I suspect they would have a way to see uh, oxygen in an atmosphere in a far more efficient and better way than we can. So <clears throat> we can't hide. So we are a beacon. And you can imagine that anyone who's carbon-based is going to come here because, hey, this is another planet like ours. Like, you know, let's go there. And one other thing is that <clears throat> if you, you can learn about the universe, I think, by looking at life on our planet, all right? You look at all the many, many species of life on our world, from the the not-so-complex multicellular organisms all the way up to the most advanced are us. Every one of those life forms has a certain characteristic that they're imbued with, every one of them, and that's curiosity. When a dog smells something, they walk over and they sniff. Why do they do that? They're not just looking for a meal. They're curious about what that smell is. It may not be a smell of something they want to eat. Same thing for other creatures on the planet. They're curious. And that curiosity is something that uh, I think is built in, a universal template. And so any creatures on the planet that want to, uh, or any creatures on their planet elsewhere that are interested in their planet are going to be curious too and say, what's behind those points of light up there in the sky? just like the ancient Babylonians did here, and then the ancient Greeks after them. And so we found that now we have, we have a uh, potentially curious universe. And curiosity breeds exploration. Exploration breeds contact. And contact breeds, well, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> Yeah, I know. I I uh I I know that uh every country has their what they call their black projects, the projects that no one can see. Um, we have them. Uh, Russia has them. China has them. Other countries have them. Um, but um, we've never seen, for instance, an object that can move underwater at several hundred knots, which is like several hundred miles an hour. Okay, nothing can go that fast underwater that we have ever made as a human race, not as Americans, not as Belgians, not as Russians, not as uh, British. No human uh, country on this planet of any kind has ever created an object that can move that fast underwater. It's physically impossible uh, and be nearly silent. The only way you can do it, incidentally, is if you do this 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 
warping thing I was telling you about where you have the four dimensions that we're in and then we have the fifth dimension. Well, the way it works is any craft you have is going to kind of bounce between these areas. They're going to bounce in and out. So they're neither here nor there. They're kind of always in between. And that would give them the opportunity to travel at any speed they wanted to underwater and not feel the water there, but still be kind of visible, right? And mostly not visible. See, so it, it, it's all adding up. Now, the other thing that's really interesting is over there in Geneva, okay, in Switzerland, they have CERN, right? The, the Nuclear Particle Accelerator Laboratory. Well, they're building another uh, laboratory, another uh, accelerator, because they're going to investigate a certain type of particle. The particle that I was that I'm talking about is the one that can actually take you out of these four dimensions and move you into the fifth dimension. Okay, that's called the Kaluza Klein particle, and they're investigating the, these KK particles because they're finding some really interesting properties about these particles. Hmm, what do you think those properties are? <laughs> I mean, it's probably be, yeah. The fifth dimension, right. because you said at the beginning, what, what is the fifth dimension? Can you elaborate more about the fifth dimension? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, we have X, Y, and Z moving through time, right? You know, uh, lateral movement, up and down movement, and out and in movement, okay, X, Y, and Z. But it changes through time. Those are four dimensions. The fifth dimension is another space that is not a four, one of these four. And it's out here. It's actually... Uh, in the real world, in, in the real math, it's coincident with ours, but that makes people's heads blow up. So if you think of it as a separate place, okay, if you can get into that, it's highly warped. And there's another dimension further out called the Planck dimension out here. But this dimension here has a special name. It's called the bulk. That's spelled B-U-L-K. Now, that bulk dimension right there is so highly warped that if you take those KK particles I was just telling you about, and you circle your ship with them really rapidly, then those particles live here. They don't live out here. They live here. And if your ship gets dragged into this, well, then as a consequence, the universe is shrinking around you. And all distances to everything else get very small. The farther in you go, the deeper the warp and the closer objects are. If you go in a little bit, then you could go to Alpha Centauri, maybe in... 20 minutes as opposed to, uh, say, the 15 seconds it might take, you know. So the farther in you go, the smaller the dimensions, the smaller the uh, distances become. So that fifth dimension is what I'm talking about there. Is it possible for to prove that, like, I'm just curious, like a human, as a human, can we do that? Oh, that's not possible physically for our bodies. Well, it's not possible for us to prove it yet. But it is possible to uh, theorize it, and it's been done. And because um, those KK particles I'm talking about are, are gravitons. Now, we know about the fundamental four particles. We have the weak, strong force. We have the electromagnetic force and gravity. Those are the four fundamental forces in quantum mechanics, right? Our understanding of the atom. Well, it's the gravitational force that we have the problems with because every one of those other forces we can see them as particles and we can describe them also as waves light is dual nature it's a light wave and it's a photon which is a particle effectively of light right so we don't have that with gravity we know we have gravity waves we've seen them 
multiple times, all right? However, in fact, one of the detectors is right uh, near you in Italy, actually, over in Italy, okay, that detect these things. And those, those gravitational waves are probably associated also with these gravitational particles called gravitons, and we don't see those yet, probably because they live here, like we're talking about. They live off of our four dimensions where, where we spend all our time looking, right? But in CERN, at CERN, they're going to start looking here, okay? Now, <clears throat> this is uh, a theory that's based on a variation of that string theory I told you about. It's called RS1, which stands for Randall Sundrum 1. And that particular variation of string theory is the variate that actually shows us how this fifth dimension works in with regard to our other four dimensions. So it's like, you know, you can use your hand to describe it. You know, this is where we live and this is where we want to go. You know, that's why it's a different location, right? It's, it's coincident, right? It's, it could be this way. But we look at it, think of it this way. X, Y, and Z moving through time. And then this compressed dimension over here where you can go in and all the distances are shortened. And can we do it? Yeah, we can, because if we shroud our craft with these, these, these particles I'm talking about that we can generate, by the way, with just a simple fusion reactor, which Lawrence Livermore Laboratory in California has actually just made great strides in, in doing because they, they started a reaction, a fusion reaction that was uh, continuous and they had to stop it. They shut it down. So they had a continuous fusion reaction going, first time ever. That's important. So now if you have one of those in your ship, then you can generate these particles I'm talking about. And as long as they shield your ship, they shield you. Okay. And <clears throat> the one interesting thing is um, when you look at UFOs, people say, well, these UFOs are spheres or they're disks or they're triangles, right? That's the predominant set of shapes we see. You know why? I have a theory. Round UFOs are particle accelerators. And triangular UFOs are particle accelerators as well. And they're generating these particles. <clears throat> Even the shapes in our cultural history fit right in with the potential usage of these KK particles to jump into this compressed space, this compressed dimension, and literally punch out and punch in anywhere they want. Even the cultural descriptions of the UFOs work when it comes to describing a ship this way. I think it's pretty cool. It's pretty impressive. I appreciate mentioning the, the shape part because I think that's very, very relevant. Um, maybe quick question also, since you believe in uh, maybe aliens, civilization maybe doing that. Maybe the first question, because I think ask this to Jack Villay about the religion and uh, maybe that's something I also saw people speak about. If that's true, did it make that the religion doesn't make sense in that case since it's never mentioned any like advanced civilization beyond this? I don't know if you can answer this question. Well, yeah, I, it's it's not a it's a it's a question that merits investigation for sure. Um, does it mean that religion doesn't matter anymore? No, it certainly doesn't. Okay, because you'll have a group of people that say, well, religion grew out of people seeing magical beings in the past and worshiping them uh, and reproducing them on their cave walls and so forth. And there'll be one group that's going to say, yeah, these were aliens visiting us many, many 
you know, centuries ago. You can get that. And, and people will say, oh, look at that. Uh, thousands of years ago, we had uh, aliens visit and they became our gods. That'll be one train of thought. The other will be, well, <clears throat> this doesn't negate any religion whatsoever. It just means that each planet might have its own religion and that life is not constrained to humans. Life is constrained to the universe. So if you're a, a gray alien with big black eyes, uh, maybe you're just as uh, uh, religious as humans, but your gods might be different. Maybe you don't you don't have access to them. Maybe you don't know what they look like, but you make them in your own image, just like we did. You know, you know the the people here they made Jesus a a, a guy with long hair, okay, and some make him a, a a man that's more Ethiopian, okay, and. What do we know for sure? We don't, right? We don't even know for our own. So, you know, who are we to say that another racist race of being will have anything, uh, you know, more or less important to talk about when it comes to like a religion? Um, I think that they'll have their take on it and we have our take on it. We could both be right. Yeah. Interesting. So, so do you believe there's a lizard people or not? Lizard people. Well, that's interesting because I, I, I never used to, and I thought that was kind of silly. Uh, and I said, I'll stop with the, the, the reptilian garbage, I would say. But then, then I started doing research and thinking, okay, the most common type of star in the universe are these small red stars. They're called M-class stars. And they're very small. They're about a hundredth the size of our sun. And they put out roughly a hundredth the amount of, of, of uh, radiation. And any planet going around these stars is going to have one side always facing it like the moon faces us. Why is that? Because any planet that is in a habitable zone around this star, one of these small stars, is going to be really close to the star because it puts out so much less radiation. And because it puts out so much less, the planets have to be closer if they're going to be in a habitable zone, okay, where you can have liquid water on the surface and uh, an atmosphere that's not you know, scalding. And those planets will, by the very nature of being close to the planet, close to the star, are going to be tidally locked. They're not going to be able to rotate on their axes. They're going to be locked. So you're always going to have a perpetual daylight side. You can always have a sunset side. And you're always going to have a, a starry side. Okay. The other thing is, as you're going around this star on one of these small planets, and I'm gonna get to the, I'll get to this in a second. What you're talking about, okay? As you're as you're going around this star, your entire year could be five days long, and we see that. We say that we see that some planets uh, that are in the habitable zone of these small red stars, they go around the star in five days, you know, or seven days, or nine days. That's their year. Okay, that's how small the stars are, you know. So that said, what would an alien species look like if it develops on a planet like that? It's always got one side facing. Well, there's several ways to look at this. If they develop on the dark side of the planet, okay, then which they could, then they're going to have excessively capable night vision or maybe big black eyes. 
Okay. And because they're always in the dark, they may not develop pigmentation in their skin. So they might be gray. Just like we see with cave species here on our planet. Okay. That live in caves permanently. Hmm. So now, okay. That explains like the gray alien, but now let's go a step further <clears throat> on this planet. Everything that made you what you are, that got us to this particular place where we are like this, we have these, the shape, the skin, okay, all that happened because of five major extinction events that occurred on our planet. And we had five, okay? Three of them were uh, what we call biodiversity failures, where uh, species stopped diversifying and spreading out radiatively for whatever reason environmental pressures, something like that. Don't know. And, uh, but two of them, two of them were from potential bad impacts. Okay. Or, uh, and, and so on. So the bottom line is had 65 million years ago, what would have happened if dinosaurs were not ultimately obliterated by an asteroid strike? Hmm. Well, at the time, there was one particular dinosaur called a Truodon, all right, that was actually developing a bigger crankcase, a bigger brain capacity. Now, we equate surface area of the brain with capability to do reasonable, reasonable reasoned thinking. Well, this dinosaur was developing it, and of course, his, his existence and his whole line of evolution was cut short. So what would have happened? And I've speculated this around the world and, and when I've talked. What would have happened if dinosaurs didn't go extinct here? Would we exist? Right? If we exist, what would we look like? <clears throat> Is it possible that we would be intelligent dinosaurs? Now, intelligence is not a foregone conclusion. It's a, a long journey. We see that in our evolution. Um, you know, uh, the chimpanzee is no longer, is no nearly as intelligent as we are, but it's been around for about as long as we have. Okay. So why is it that Australopithecus afarensis, Lucy, okay, why did Lucy, diminutive four foot tall being, why did Lucy form a linchpin and make its way to, um, to bring about other species that led to Homo sapiens sapiens, which is us. See, how did that happen? Well, that's a that's a tough one. <clears throat> we don't have all the answers, do we? Now, Lucy was bipedal. She walked on on two feet, right? She didn't walk on all fours. That's huge because that allows them to see more, uh, gauge threats better. <clears throat> Uh, grab food that's at a higher location, climb. And the opposable thumb was very important too for grabbing things. You can't really grab stuff if you just do this too well. You know, you can't really do too much with that. All right. So all these little developments led to us by chance becoming an intelligent species. And we're the only one that has a level of intelligence that, that we have on this planet. Uh, dolphins have a brain almost as big as ours, actually a little bigger. So why didn't they become intelligent? Because it's not about brain size. It's about environmental. It's about environmental pressures. It's about 
changes in the environment that make them react. Dolphins didn't have to evolve to learn how to speak language and create science. Now, what if they did? Well, they're in the water and they've stayed in the water. Okay, so what does it mean? It means that you're limited by being underwater all the time. You know, your eyes are different. Uh, your form has to be sleek so you can survive underwater. You have to be a, a fast swimmer. Um, we don't because we moved onto land, as did some fish. Okay, so we migrated onto land and dolphins didn't. And we ended up having a lot more pressures to deal with. We had a changing environment. We had to work out how we were going to cook food. You can't light a fire underwater, all right? But still, that's a silly one because, you know, uh, that's just a pressure that we had. Yes, we would eat raw food when we were, you know, in the early days, I would say. But um, I would like to know, for instance, who the first person was to figure out that, hey, we got to put fire on this. All right, we have to put fire on this in order to uh, eat and make sure we don't get sick. I wonder who that who that one was. I'm guessing it actually happened during a forest fire. They came across a carcass, or uh, and probably still burning, and they took pieces off and started eating it. It's like, hey, this ain't bad. <laughs> and it could be that simple, but it's universal, right? So, <clears throat> so the reptilians would have developed, for instance, uh, out of on a planet where the major extinctions of a dinosaur type species never occurred. And we're assuming dinosaurs would develop. Well, look at how it happened here. You know, look at the amounts of oxygen in our atmosphere back in the Permian period, uh, tons of oxygen. And that led to um, bigger animals and so forth. But another planet would have to go through a similar evolution uh, in order to reach a similar result. That's why, if we ever do find extraterrestrial life that's intelligent, it will in no way look like us. It's not Star Trek. <laughs> Maybe the most important question, at least I want to ask you, since you formulated that these objects either in the in the sky or in oceans that we don't know the origin of it. Why bother this obsession? If you already say that they are advanced, and the I think there is also evidence from old ages and the drawing that there's alien species or craft. So what is the point if they're already coming and just, I don't know, see what we do, like the reason you mentioned and why there's obsession and since we, we need to know the truth, we need to know what is happening. Where would this lead to us? We have already enough problems in our lives. So like people, why we should bother with that if they're already coming and see? And it's hard even to get a hard evidence, even though you, so you, you saying, convinced me. Yeah. Are you saying, why would we bother to look for them? Or why would they bother to come look for us? I think you've answered the, the, the second part in your conversation, why they are bothered. But I think why are the human obsessed or bothered with that? Since it seems, oh. it seems that we don't have, uh, I don't know, way of communication or uh, or people just say we have our own problem in life and why we should look for aliens in this moment well if you if, if you go back thousands of years um there have been 
drawings on cave walls of strange objects, right? So clearly humans saw something that they couldn't explain. They, they, they put it on a wall. They drew a picture. They scratched it into rock and on a petroglyph. Um, now I did a lecture. <clears throat> um, I've done that in a number of places in the United States where uh, I discovered that all over the world, among peoples that never talked to each other thousands of years ago, they all represent their deities, their gods, with halos around their heads. Way, what's that? Why would they put halos around the heads? The Wanjana in Australia, the Kimberley region, the Aboriginal people, <clears throat> they would draw these pictures of their, their creatures that they said came from the sky, lived under the water, and had full mastery of the water. And they had halos around their heads. The Wanjana. Okay. Valcamonica in Italy. The aliens, warriors, had helmets, you know, on their heads. Looked like uh, uh, halos, right? Um, India, there were creatures that actually, in, in the cave drawings, the pictographs in the caves, had halos around their heads. The Renaissance painters all showed our gods and Jesus with halos around their heads. All right? And in fact, in many of those Renaissance paintings, you can't miss disc-shaped craft in some of them that they're even pointing at in some cases. What does all that mean? It means to me <clears throat> that this was a phenomenon that was probably seen, and then they reproduced it and recorded it, right? So why, would, why do we bother? I think it goes back to the fact that we know that at some point, looking forward, this planet is going to be destroyed. Uh, not necessarily by an asteroid, but by the sun. When the sun runs out of hydrogen, the sun's going to swell up into a red giant ball. We see it all over the universe. We know it's happening at, at some point. We have about 5 billion years. So don't pack your bags. Okay, but it means that... <clears throat> it means that um, we will eventually, as a race of beings on a world in the Sol system, our son's name is Sol, S-O-L, um, we're going to have to leave here and go to another world. So we're looking for other worlds, not to leave tomorrow or a thousand years from now, but because, number one, we're curious to know if there's more life than us out there because it's an awful feeling thinking that you're alone. And no one wants to be alone, either as a group of humans that don't want to be alone in the universe or a singular person who doesn't have a friend. That's awful. <clears throat> and, and, and I look at it, you know, that we tend to reach out. You know, we do that. Every single mission to Mars we have ever launched has as part of its repertoire of experiments an experiment to look for evidence of past or present life on mars it's a curiosity thing we're trying to figure out the universe and so we're going to look for other life and i think that alien species are doing the same thing uh especially because they can see with their advanced systems they can see that there's an oxygen <clears throat> envelope around this planet you know so we're doing the same thing we're looking out too we're just more primitive we can't really get you know out there yet it's fascinating. Maybe since it goes into a few question. 
maybe the first thing, um, what does it take for us so that we can maybe catch with this technology? Where do you think? Because I think, for example, yes. Avi Loeb, for example, he's trying to make some effort, and I think he faces a lot of criticism. I, I, we had him in a podcast, and yeah, the Galileo expert, project. Yeah, and he had expressed yep. that. I've talked, he, to, I've talked to Avi. Yeah. yeah, we're friends. I know Avi, and uh, okay. his Galileo project. I've talked to his team, uh, and hopefully they'll. I, I'm I'm hopeful that they'll uh, they'll use me because I've figured out ways to remotely control whole buildings with instrumentation from here in the Northeastern United States when it's out in the Western United States. So I can do it, you know, easily enough. So hopefully uh, they'll use me for that. So he's come under criticism for Galileo, uh, the project to uh, determine this, but isn't that what a scientist should do is try to find answers that might not be palatable to a lot of people. You may not like the answer, but you darn will want to know that you got the answer. You know, and if you and see, there's a thing about science too. A scientist is willing to be wrong. Okay, Avi Loeb isn't going into this thinking, uh, <clears throat> "I'm right. I know there's aliens out there." He's going in it saying, "I believe there could be aliens out there," and we would be doing a disservice to those that follow generations after us uh, not to look for them. We should look for them at the very least. If they're here, we should try to locate them and see if we can find them because we owe it to science. You know, there's enough stories out there that make it impossible to believe for me that it's all fictional and all made up. I just don't see it. So I think Avi's on the right track. <clears throat> um, and I'll be talking to their team again. Maybe a quick question also, because I think that's something I would love to ask you. Ask Jack Valiz's question about Bob Lazar's story, and he didn't want to answer. Um, commenting. And I understand maybe, but I'm curious from the point of view, what do you think about him? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I know that... Um, I know Bob... Uh, I don't know him, but... I know Bob's story. Um, I know uh, George Knapp has done extensive interviews with, with Bob Lazar. Um, I know Rogan's done it, yes. <clears throat> but I'm not convinced one way or the other that he did everything he said he did. Um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced, but I'm also not calling him any kind of fraud either. Because... I don't know enough either way. Okay. For example, um, before they found element 115, he was talking about it, right? <clears throat> element 115 in the periodic table. Well, if you are a lay person, you say, how did he know that exists? Well, as a guy as an astronomer, I know that you could have up to about 118 elements before the strong nuclear force, those are the four fundamental forces I talked about, can't hold that nucleus together anymore, and they'll start drifting apart. So if you say there's 115 and it's not there yet, it certainly will be at some point, okay, because we just haven't found it yet or created it yet or done whatever. So you'll be able to theoretically determine how many 
protons you can have in your nucleus, okay? Because that's the number in the periodic table, 115 protons in the nucleus of the atom. Well, uh, you can theorize up to about 118, beyond which the atom would really fall apart. You couldn't hold those outer protons in. So um, <clears throat> it's not like he was saying some miraculous element in this case <clears throat> that he you know, got to work with. Um, he could have just done the theoretical calculation saying, well, there should be an element 115, right? So if you were someone that wanted to uh, try to make him into a fraud, which I am not, you would say, well, you could have just known that, you know, you could obviously have an element 115 and you just kind of waited around until somebody found it. And that's possible. So because it's a possibility, we have to be cautious. And that's all I'm saying. You know, um, I like his story. It's actually a very exciting story to, to listen to Bob Lazar talk about this stuff. Um, and I dearly love it all to be true. <laughs> I really would. <clears throat> and and maybe it is. But again, I can't say one way or the other. You know, but for the reason I said. No, I, I, I don't. I don't think it's fictitious. I think that, you know, as I said, I don't say yes or no. I'm in the middle. I'm not going to say he's faking it. He's true because there's evidence to indicate he could be faking. There's evidence to indicate he could be telling the truth. So as a science guy, I stay right in the middle until more evidence comes out saying one way or the other. Mm -hmm. That's all. But about the pressure to release some like classified data or something like that. Where do you think the do you think, for example, just if you're holding some information, why? From the public? Why do you think there do, do you believe there is important information related to UFO or vehicles or USO? Do, do you believe there is? And why do you think it still keeps secret or classified or that kind of nature? Oh yeah, see that's 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 just straight politics, you know. Uh that's countries wanting power. Um it really comes down to that. Um I've I've worked for the Navy for many years, okay. Um and I'm familiar with that world, having lived in it in a way for quite a long time. And I know how the United States is with secrets. Okay. If it's something that could benefit us, they're not gonna go public with it and share it with any other countries. So there is stuff that they're going to keep secret, you know, and it's unfortunate because it means that there's a lot of stuff out there that could probably uh, benefit humanity, you know, and uh, they're not going to part with it. Yet, if you look now at what the government's doing, uh, the government's done two things. Number one, they don't use the word UFO, do they? They use UAP. Why? The reason is because UFO, you say anything about UFOs and you got to get a tinfoil hat and you're labeled a kook, right? So they developed UAP. Why? So they could write the narrative. They could create what they want the definition to be. They don't have to fight a previous definition. UAP now means unknown aerial phenomenon. Ooh. Well, it's an unidentified flying object. Don't say that. You have to get a tinfoil hat. 
It's an unknown aerial phenomenon. Got me? Oh, yeah, okay. So UAP is, is the new term, and the government coined it, and I'm glad they did, because it's time to take this into the serious realm. Because when you have a Harvard-tenured astrophysicist who runs the astrophysics department at Harvard, when he comes online and says, I think this is a strong possibility that these, these creatures are out there, that these beings are there. You could either label him a nutcase, or you can say, tell me more, Avi. And luckily, there are more people asking him to tell them more than those calling him a nutcase. It's all the people in academia, all the people that, that don't want to believe it, uh, that don't open themselves to the possibility that it could be true. It's all those people that you end up hearing from uh, in the news media because they get you the story. Oh, this scientist here thinks Avi Loeb's a nutcase. Huh. What about all the thousands, hundreds of thousands that think he's not? Oh, they're no fun. The guy that thinks he's a nutcase, that's news. We can sell that. We'll get ratings. So it's all about news cycle, ratings, and so forth, right? Hmm. <clears throat> good good question good question for instance like spacex for instance i don't think they have anything um they're holding i actually don't think nasa has anything either and you know i i, I kind of laugh when people say yeah, nasa's hiding this nasa's not letting you see the space station nasa cut the feed right when this object appeared yeah no um what they don't understand is that it's not just nasa controlling the feeds okay Russia sees the feeds, Japanese see the feeds, okay, America sees the feeds, and at other times other countries see the feeds as well. So if NASA cuts the feed, doesn't mean all the feeds go down. Okay, it just means that our feed, our our uh ground station that was supposed to receive the signal from the International Space Station couldn't see it. And so it momentarily goes blue. Blue is a typical color you see. So um but everybody likes to turn a, a good conspiracy, right? They want to turn it into a conspiracy. They cut the feed. Something must have happened. And then you'll always find someone who comes along and says, I bet I know what it was. And then they'll say something that makes no sense or have no evidence for. And the next thing you know, that's the fact. You're hearing it as a fact, not just a thought. I think this is what it was. And it was, I know what it was. And it was this. And you know, that's the stages of a rumor, right? You say... I think this, and that becomes, I am sure that's what it was, to I know that's what it was. It, you know, it's like, wow. You know, no evidence, and still people jump to these crazy conclusions. Interesting. Maybe the last question for you, hypothetically, if we have, like, assuming we have the alien civilization here, and we have a contact with human here, what do you think possibility to change? Like, like I don't, I'm curious, like, Two different species in the communication between us and an alien species. Yes, yes. Like giving us advanced well, technology. That's something one of the series, oh. but I'm not sure if that's maybe that's not true. But uh, yeah. Well, Frank Corso wrote a book, you know, called "The Day After Roswell," and uh, in it he he talks about. Uh, in, if you have the book, you know. But for the people who listen. Um, in his book, he talks about how he was entrusted with these alien artifacts 
and he seeded these alien artifacts to different companies to make things like Kevlar and the integrated circuit chip and things like that. And you have to say, well, is that, yeah, I did. You know, is that true? Um, you know, is that true or not? You know, and um, if he's writing a book, you know, he's trying to make money. <laughs> so right away, you wonder, right? <clears throat> but, um, and he, if he really was working on this, this, this little shoebox full of strange contraptions that he called his nut file, okay? If he really was working on stuff like that, then you have to wonder um, who gave it to him and what his mission was. And why would he come out and talk about it in later life? Stuff like that would always remain well above top secret. And he would have gone to jail for saying any of it. So why didn't he go to jail? Um, you could say, well, if they put him in jail, then they would know he was telling the truth. Well, you could always say that he was telling lies about the United States and causing international incidents by making Russia feel like we're leapfrogging with, with special technology that they didn't have. Well, that's something too, that you have to think about. And um, so part of me thinks just like with Bob Lazar, part of me thinks that Frank Corso was the real deal. And part of me thinks that maybe some of it was true, but some of it wasn't quite factual. And I've read the book many, so many times, in fact, that the pages have fallen out. I got to kind of resort the pages in order to do the pages right now because I, so many of them have fallen out. But it was a very good book. I was riveted by it because I wanted to know if this was if this was true. And I read it with the idea of whether it could be true. And the answer was yes, it could be true. But was it true? I don't know. Right. So um, if we had that, if we had that communication with an alien species or we grabbed a downed UFO and we took components and gave them to our people to research, what would that mean for Russia or China uh, or any of our allies you know, in Canada? You know, would they want it too? And we, of course, wouldn't give it to them. We would never give it to them. You know, so uh, there's a whole host of problems associated with one country getting this kind of information versus all the countries getting this kind of information. And uh, so that's why I, I'm, I'm not sure how that's happened and, and why an alien race would pick the United States over a different country. Why us? Why would they? I think it's because it's happening in a lot of countries. It's not just happening here. It's happening there and there and there. It's happening because we're being visited, I think, by more than one species. And again, if they're carbon-based, our big blue beacon of our blue ball of oxygen beaming out into space it was almost all bees. <laughs> big blue bouncing beaming ball of oxygen going out into space is a calling card that's announcing loudly, we are here. We are alive. And if you're carbon-based, that's where you're going to go. That's really amazing. Uh, we're all inspiring. And thank you so much. I don't know if you have any final words like to say for people listening. Any final words like to say? <clears throat> well, 
I think I just said it, <laughs> you know, um, you know, our, our atmosphere is our calling card and it's going to be visible for thousands and thousands of light years away. And within those thousands of light years, we have found, um, just over 5,000 potential planets. And that's just the beginning. There's more planets than stars in the universe, more planets than stars in our galaxy, which is a hundred billion stars, the low end. So uh, life, I think, is boundless. I think there's a lot of life out there. I think the universe is built for life. Uh, and that's why I wrote my book, The Populated Universe. That's what it's about. You know, it's my belief that the, the, that, that life in the universe is the rule, not the exception. And I think given the chance, life will develop uh, and that it's very hard for it not to develop. Just look in the bottom of Lake Vostok, you know, look at the black smoker hydrosulfide vents down at the hydrothermal vents down in the Pacific Ocean. Also look on the walls of craters, uh, volcanic craters. Wow. There's bacteria lining those craters just above the lava where they're flourishing. See, so life flourishes amid uh, the the qualities that would extinguish it. And I think that's a very interesting feature of our planet. And we exist in spite of earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, fires, asteroid strikes. You know, 98% of life died from a volcanic eruption during the Permian period 252 years ago. 98%. It's hardly anything left. That could kill up. That's a planet killer, you know, that eruption. The ocean temperature rose by 21 degrees Celsius in just a few short months. All the oxygen you know, was leaving the water because of that. The hotter it gets, the less oxygen can be in the water. And uh, many creatures died, including the plankton, which make oxygen. So it was a self-feeding, killing machine going on there. But it recovered, didn't it? And uh, what happened was the creatures that were hardest hit back then were creatures that would become mammals like us. And the creatures that survived were creatures that were that were to become the dinosaurs. And when that when the Permian extinction occurred, that's when the age of the dinosaurs began. And if they hadn't been rendered extinct by that asteroid 65 million years ago, who knows where we'd be? Who knows if I wouldn't be talking to you in a different language or have scales on my face, greenish skin, the yellow tail, you know, who knows, right? Thank you so much, Mark. It was really, really beautiful. And uh, I, I deeply enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was really inspiring. And thank you so much. Oh, that's okay, Mara. Thank you so much. It was very nice to talk to you, actually. <laughs>